Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Peace and love everybody. It's your brother Ali. It's the Traveler's Podcast. Thank you for being here. Uh, this episode does not sound or look like our normal episode. And that's because I'm on tour. I'm not traveling with a podcast set up. Even when I've been on the tour in the past, since we started the Traveler's Podcast, I brought a microphone with me. Sometimes I even brought the camera with me. And I'm, I'm not doing that this time. The tour that I'm on, I'm a guest and I wanted to pack really light. And so I didn't bring those things. And I've just kind of been leaving it to BK1 to have to figure out how to make it look and sound the best that it can. I just have my computer and my phone. <laughs> and today I'm recording the, audio, I'm recording the video on my, on my computer and I'm recording the audio on my phone like I'm actually holding the phone here. And I'm going to do my best because I'm not going to ask BK to do this when he's with his family and when it's the holidays. So I'm going to try to keep it brief. And as they say on the East Coast, I won't hold you. But I didn't want to skip this week. Um, when this episode comes out, it'll be Christmas Day. Obviously, for me as a Muslim, I don't celebrate Christmas. But I know that a lot of people do. And... Um, you know, I'm recording this in San Diego at the end of our tour. Let me just say at the at the beginning, at the outset, that uh, this episode is sponsored like all of them are. Let me just say those at the top. First and foremost, the Zakat Foundation has been rocking with us since the very beginning. Zakat Foundation is a really great organization that does humanitarian aid work all over the world. Um, you know, since we've been working with them, I've just seen over and over, every time there's a need, Zakat Foundation is trying to figure out how to partner with people on the ground to fill that need. So since we started, there's been the war in Ukraine and Zakat Foundation was there helping them. Even though, you know, in this, it's an Islamic organization, they don't only help Muslims and they don't try to proselytize with their work. It's enough as an Islamic organization for them to just try to help and work with people on the ground. So a lot of Muslims were like, yo, Ukraine hasn't always been good to its Muslim population. And the Zakat Foundation's feeling was mine exactly. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of us, that's not to be discussed right now. The point right now is that these are people that are, um, that are in great need and just for human dignity and for their lives, they're in need. And so it's our duty to help them as much as we can. And so Zakat Foundation helped there. Also, since we started, there was the big uh, earthquake in Syria and Turkey. And I live in Turkey. The president of Zakat Foundation is from Turkey and they have a big office there. And so they were able to deliver stuff there. You know, and now the biggest, you know, the focus, I would say, is on Palestine. And it's almost impossible to get things into Palestine. Um, and I know that they're working their hardest. Um, I know that there's been talk about trying to help in Sudan and Congo and all kinds of things. So Zakat Foundation, go to zakat.org, Z-A-K-A-T dot O-R-G uh, is their website. Zakat U.S. is how you follow them on social media. And the fact that they sponsor this podcast, which is, you know, it's a cultural thing. And it shows that they understand a lot about what it really takes to improve human life all over the world. And also, uh, we're brought to you by The Caravan. The Caravan is our group of supporters, listeners, people that rock with the music, um, that really contribute to making sure that this platform stays truly independent in this time that's extremely important. I've always, from the very beginning of my career, had people who are able to open and close doors, who have closed doors or refused to open doors because of my message. That's something I've experienced from the very beginning. And it's happened more than once, and I can feel it happening now. And part of what's so tricky about it is you can't really prove it. It's very seldom that somebody says, no, I'm not going to distribute your music or I'm not going to book your shows or no, you can't be on this platform or no, you can't be on this television show or no, you can't do this because of something that you've said or something that you stood for or something that you're just even associated with. They usually don't say that. They usually just quietly back away 
and leave you to have to wonder what was the reason, you know. And, you know, sometimes at least with the FBI, <laughs> like at least they show up when they show up at the house, you know, they ask me about certain things. Uh, at least when the Department of Homeland Security hit me up, you know, I knew that it was directly related to, to something, but almost never. You know, I, I was supposed to do a big tour around the time that Uncle Sam Goddamn came out and I was uninvited from that tour. And, um, you know, because of the song Uncle Sam Goddamn and because that was at that time was one of the big independent videos that went straight to YouTube. And this was before the time of algorithms. So if something was doing well on YouTube, it could just be shared with whoever wanted to share it and people would see it and things like that. So I've experienced that a lot and I'm experiencing it now. Um, there's no way for me to prove it, but I see it. There were, I ended, you know, uh, this year, or I would say really in the beginning, in like middle of the year, in, in the summer, the producer for this podcast and my partner in Travelers Media, BK1 and I, we spent a significant amount of time in America just taking meetings with, and talking about things that we wanted to do going forward. And uh, some of the things that were discussed, people seemed really happy about and excited for. And a lot of those things that we discussed have just kind of died out. They, they withered and died on the vine. They're not going to happen. And there's no way to prove that those things are because of me just caring about remembering and reminding people of the humanity of the Palestinian people. Um, you know, I've just seen a lot of those things. It, it just really, those, those aren't going to happen now. Those were things that people were very excited about, um, and they're just not going to happen now. And that's unfortunate, but I've, I've had that from the very beginning. And of course, it's nothing like what the people are going through in Palestine. Um, so I say all that to say that, the, in, you know, when things like that happen, the caravan becomes more and more apparent, you know, to the people that are part of it. That, you know, the people that go to BrotherAli.com in the join section and come in either at the $5 level, there's a $25 level, there's a $100 level. Now, that $100 a month level is a big commitment. We just had another person join. We've had a group of people there that have been part of this for a couple of years now. And it really means a lot to us. And at every level, you know, there's all kind of rare exclusive content there. Uh, we have something called the Vault that we um, that we introduced maybe a month or so ago, where there's this ever increasing vault of music that is rare and exclusive. Some of it you can't find anywhere else. Um, a lot of it, it would be very difficult to track it all down. A lot of it isn't in, isn't on streaming services. Um, I mean, you know, there's things that I did with Scarface and CL Smooth and, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting a lot of the names right now, Fonte and others. Um, you know, really dope music, Wale, Freeway, really dope music that's up there that is hard to find or it can't be found anywhere remixes and demos. There's demos up there that me and Ant made while we were working on The Undisputed Truth, while we were working on Us, while we were working on a lot of these different albums that you just can't find anywhere. And there are speeches and um, live performances and videos and all type of stuff there that you can't get anywhere else. Those people supporting make sure that we have a certain baseline uh, so that no matter if nobody ever books us for shows anymore or if nobody sponsors the podcast, if all of our sponsors pulled out or if, you know, whatever happens, we have a direct line from our supporters to us and back and forth so that and, and they also are in contact with each other. There's a communal aspect and element to that as well. So. That's a really beautiful thing. Go to brotherali.com in the join section, sign the mailing list, um, and also get down with the caravan. Also, we have a partnership with BetterHelp, which is the online therapy platform. You know, maybe you've always thought about doing therapy. I really think that everybody should have some sort of relationship and some sort of access to therapy. And I use BetterHelp to connect with therapy. And so... 
uh, we reached out to them and asked them if we could start a partnership with them. And they did. And we're really grateful that they did. There was some misinformation being spread that they were offering free services to Israelis only. And, you know, uh, Israelis are people who should have access to therapy. Um, and there was some misinformation at the beginning that they were only helping Israelis. The reality is that they have come in whenever there's been these big humanitarian crises and they've offered free legal or free mental health services to people who don't have access. And so it's true that they are offering it to the Palestinian people as well and that they're not discriminating between the two sides. And so anyone who heard that, you know, we reached out to them very directly about that. Is this true? And they responded to us saying, we're helping people on both sides. And um, and then they, they released a public statement to that effect as well. So betterhelp.com is dope. You, if you have access to a therapist's office where you can walk in and talk to somebody in, in person in your community, I think that's best. But if that's not the case, and it's not for me, and for a lot of other people, both because I don't have a job, I don't have insurance, I live in Turkey, I don't live in America. Um, and so, you know, for me, better help is the way that I access therapy. And you go to bet better help, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com. And if you do slash travelers, that lets them know that we sent you there. So they give you a discount and they give us a commission to help the work that we do here. And then they'll take you to a questionnaire that you fill out. It's completely confidential and private. You tell them what you're doing, why you want to start therapy. You know, I, I, a lot of times, if you've never done therapy, suggest to people, just go for a specific reason. So for me, it was my birthday. My birthday came around and I've always had a weird relationship with my birthday. So much that people like BK1 that have known me for a long time are always like, hey man, I don't know if I'm supposed to say happy birthday, but I'm just acknowledging that it is your birthday. And I'm saying, I love you. I appreciate you, man. Because there was a time when I was straight up on some like, I don't like my birthday. I think birthdays are stupid. I didn't remember other people's birthdays. I just was like, I'm not into that. And then I met my wife and she really is, you know, and she threw, she would throw these big elaborate birthday parties for our kids and for other people. And I knew that she was really into her birthday. And so I would do birthday parties for her. And some, there's been a few years that she did stuff for me. Like there's a couple times in our, we've been together 20 years now. So there's been times where she's gone all out. And um, man, one year she had kind of a surprise birthday party for me with the Muslim community that we facilitated. And yeah, it was just really dope. And But, but a couple, couple years ago, I think it's two birthdays ago now in particular, she didn't do anything. And like nobody even said happy birthday to me. And it really bothered me. And I, so I reached out to a therapist and I started and I said, you know, I'm not going to go into everything. I'm just going to talk to a therapist about what my birthday might mean to me. And so we started with that. And it I started with that conversation and just with some initial getting to know you questions, this therapist let me know that I was in good hands. And so I dove all the way in and started talking about all kind of stuff. And we got really deep, really fast, you know, and then she went, she left BetterHelp and she went to in-person therapy. But we did great work together. And I was sad about that, but she was very professional about it. Let me know what was happening. And then I had a second therapist who was an elder lady who was very wise and she had a lot to offer. But I, after a few weeks, I started realizing like, man, this isn't for me. Like she's just saying the stuff that she always says. If she had a podcast, I'd listen to it. If she had a book and it was on audiobook, because I can't read physically, like I'm, I'm partially blind, can't read physical books. But if, they had, if she wrote books, I would read them. But this doesn't feel like it's tailored to me. She kind of like never remembered really important things about me. And I learned enough, also because my wife is a therapist, I knew enough to know it's possible for there to be a really wise person who is a great therapist, but it's not a match and a fit for me. So I changed again. And then I got a person, uh, a young guy who is 
my age, or he might even be a little younger than me. And he let me know in our first meeting, I've seen you perform. I'm a fan of your music. I'm not a super fan, but I know who you are. And is that okay with you? And he has a particular type of approach called person-based or people-based, which basically allows the client to take the lead in talking. And so I said, let's try it, you know. And so I've had sessions with him and it's been really good. And so now I feel like I am with somebody that's helping me directly again. So therapy has been really dope. Also, you know, the holidays, like I said, this comes out on Christmas. And But we've got New Year's coming, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day coming up. And it's a good time, you know, to to do that, whether it's to just talk through some of the stuff from the holidays, whether it's to talk through the new year. So what I suggest for people that have never done it or maybe don't trust it or don't know how to feel about it is just go in and say, I'm just going to talk about my new year's resolutions and why I never follow up on them. Or I'm just going to talk about some stuff that came out during the holidays. Or I'm just going to talk about reflecting on the past year or thinking about the year to come you know, or just finding some specific thing. I'm just going to start talking about this and just go in and just do that. And if you don't feel like this person is either a good fit or they're not capable of holding your stuff, then just switch therapists. It's it's a button. You click a button and you got it and you now they're like, okay, um, well, let's find you a new therapist and you just try it. So I recommend that. That's something I recommend. So those are the sponsors. We also have, I'm finishing a tour. By the time you hear this, we will have just finished up our tour with Living Legends. And it's been really dope. I'm also very tired. I have to be really honest. And I miss my family like crazy. I'm not used to traveling all year and touring all year like I used to do. Both because I live in Istanbul, Turkey. And now I run my own operations, you know, between my touring company I run myself. And then also Travelers Media is how I release my music and my podcast now. And that's me and my partner, BK1, who normally produces this podcast. Um, Between running my own operations and living in Istanbul, which is much cheaper, much less expensive, I just don't have to tour as much as I used to. And so now when I do it, it's really special. But also now when I do it, it just hurts, man. It hurts being away from my family. I realize, you know, I have two older kids and then we have two younger kids. And the older kids just lived with me on tour all the time. And then when the pandemic hit and then I made those changes in my life and now since then, like I just really feel the difference between, you know, I had two children who I was providing for them And when I wasn't on tour, I was with them and I would come home and cook and clean and, you know, all that kind of stuff was very hands on. I would try to be with them and volunteered at their schools and all that kind of stuff. But there's just a difference with children when your children expect you to be there and when they don't. And my two little ones expect me to be there. And when I'm not, they want an explanation. You know, my two little, one of the two little ones, when I told her I was leaving, I said, I'm going to be gone for six weeks. They couldn't even conceive of that. And they would, I was, I was trying to explain how long six weeks even is. Yeah, I used to tour, you know, for 10 months out of the year. It was nothing for me to tour between eight and 10 months out of the year for a lot of my older kids growing up. And my youngest one, couldn't even figure out how long six weeks was. And she was like, but who's going to do this with me? And who's going to do this with me? Like, who's going to do mornings? You know, I'm a morning person. And so I do the morning prayers and like we wash and we read the Quran and we do all this stuff. And she's like, who's going to do all that stuff with us? Who's going to make our breakfast? Who's going to make, you know? And I was like, you know, mommy will be here. And, you know, one of our elder kids are still in the house and like she'll be here and you'll be with your teachers and your friends and like you know the guy that drives them to and from school and all this stuff they go to this really beautiful private school in Turkey that we can afford because it's less expensive and because I run my own own operations now and she was like okay and I was trying to explain how long six weeks is I'm like it's like Ramadan 
and then another half of Ramadan. And she was just like, what are you talking about? And then she was like, okay. And then she just got quiet and she turned away and I just saw tears coming out of her eyes. I just saw tears like falling off her cheeks. And I said, baby, what's up? And she was like, but we're best friends. And man, that's just like, you know, between what that is to her, but also not even realizing how normal that was for me and my older kids. And it's not guilt. It's not guilt. I promise it's not shame. Um, you know, my wife's a therapist and she always says, two things can be true. Why can't both things be true? So, you know, I, it's both true that I needed to do that to establish our life and to provide for our family. Like, I don't have another way to provide for our family. And it's my calling to do what I do. I was created to communicate, and this is the way that I was given to do it. And I worked very hard for it and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it did mean that my wife could mostly be at home and be with the children and care for them and, you know, and it did mean that, um, you know, we had a nice working class life, you know. I don't even know if it's middle class. When you do what I do for a living, it goes up and down. So there's times where, like, yeah, we're all going to Puerto Rico and, like, you know what I mean? And there's th times like that. And then there's times where it's pretty lean, you know, too. And there's times where, like, I, you know, we could do, we've done really dope things. It's also true that my ego was in play the whole time. That's always the case. It's part of what the Islamic tradition, especially tasawwuf or Sufism or the, the science of the internal self, we know that our ego is, at is present at all times. Like our spirit is there, our heart is there, our intellect is there, our mind is there. And our ego is there and it's present at all times. And so the ego demands what it wants. And so the ego doesn't want to turn down a chance to have more attention and to have more money. And so there were times that I, did I need to take every single one of those shows? I don't know. Probably not. You know, I also but really believed in the work ethic that we had at that time. And that's a good thing. You know, that's the intellect. You know, but I also know that did I have to take all those shows? I don't probably not, you know. So it's not so much a guilt thing. It's not so much a shame thing. It's not so much a regret thing. But it is an acknowledgement of the fact that there's a big difference between what the, our, young, our two smaller children experience versus what our two older children experience. And it's hard, like being gone from them is hard. And for them, me being gone is hard. Now, my wife is amazing. You know, my wife is really an incredible human being. And a lot of times when men say that, I'm always like, what'd you do to her, dude? <laughs> a lot of times men say that when they're like, man, I cheated on her and she never left. Or like, I, you know, that's not what I mean. I just mean that she's an amazing human being, regardless of what she did for me or for the kids or whatever. And especially with my daughters, I'm like, it's, it feels so good to be able to say, be like your mom. It feels so good to have a, a wife and have daughters and to be able to be like, be like that lady. Be a lady like she's a lady. You know what I mean? Or be different. But I'm very happy for them to be like, man, to have her, you know, as a role model and as an example and somebody to look up to and somebody to learn from. And, you know, that's a really beautiful thing. But she's an amazing human being. And, um, yeah, it's a trip. It's really a trip. And so I'm tired, not even physically, I think, but I think my heart is tired because also, you know, I live in a Muslim country now, and so when something happens in the Muslim world, it's a very present thing, you know. Our neighbors are Palestinian. My kids go to school with Palestinian kids. And I love that. 
you know, my wife is black and Puerto Rican and my daughters really identify with being as Puerto Ricans. And I, I love that Puerto Ricans are very special people, you know, and Palestinians are very, very special people. You know, Somalis are special people. There's a lot of special people. Irish people, very special people. You know, Italian people are very special people. Jewish people are very special people. They really are. They're very special people. And it's crazy. Like, this time is so nuts, man. It's a crazy time to be to be alive. It's a crazy time to for any of us to be us. It's it's a you know, I've been I've said this before in this podcast. I've been connected to Jewish people for a long time. The five daily prayers, when you say the five daily prayers, you finish them by reciting a prayer. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala ali Sayyidina Muhammad. Allah send prayers on the Prophet Muhammad and on his family. The way that we send, the way that we also pray for prayers and send prayers on the family of Abraham, on Abraham and his family, our master Sayyidina Ibrahim, our master Abraham. Allahumma barakta ala Sayyidina Muhammad and bless the, the family of the Prophet Muhammad, him and his family, and bless the family of Abraham and the family of Abraham. Like our religion, they don't see them, Jews don't see themselves connected to us, not religiously, because we ex- accept all of their prophets. All of their prophets are our prophets. We see them as prophets. Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael and you know, all of these, all of the, the, the prophets in the Jewish Bible or the Old Testament are our prophets too. And we believe that Isa, alayhi salam, Jesus, we believe that he's the Messiah. They don't believe that. The Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. That was the separation between Judaism and Christianity. So when Jesus came and announced himself to be the Messiah, the Jews didn't believe that. The Muslims do. And then the Prophet Muhammad came. And if you look in the New Testament and you know in the Bible, you'll see the you'll see Isa, Jesus, alayhi salam, and we believe in his mother, in Miriam, and we believe that she had a very special relationship with the Creator, and it's in the Quran. Those stories are also in the Quran, and. In the Bible, he talks about, Jesus talks about the comforter coming and the way he describes one that's going to come. Now, the, many of the Christians say that that comfort he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. Muslims believe that person that he's talking about to believe to be Muhammad or to be Ahmed. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, prayers and peace be upon him. So we accept Jesus we don't accept the Trinity and we don't believe that he's divine or that he's the son of God. He's a, he's a figure that represents the divine. He is the Messiah. We believe that he was born to a virgin mother. And that's something that we believe in. It's a tenet of our faith and of our religion. Um, and we also believe in all of the prophets that were in the Jewish Bible or the Hebrew Bible or the Torah or the uh, the Old Testament, as the Christians call it. And I, when I first became a Muslim, I converted in the community of Imam Warathuddin Muhammad, who's the son of Elijah Muhammad. And I quickly became an Imam in that community. I converted when I was 15. By the time I was 17, I was giving the Friday prayer <laughs> sermons. And then when I was like 19, I started working there full time at the mosque in, in North Minneapolis called Masjid and Nur the Mosque of Light. Uh, We initially were meeting in a little house in North Minneapolis, and then we started meeting at the mosque in South Minneapolis, historic mosque on 38th and 4th. Now I believe it's a Hindu place of Hindu worship. And uh, right by the Sabathany Center in South Minneapolis. And then we uh, acquired a restaurant that was owned by a Muslim man. He owned a restaurant there and he sold alcohol and he had a fire. And my understanding is that he believed that that fire 
was an opening for him to donate the building as a mosque so that in his way he was making like he was trying to repent for the fact that he had sold alcohol we're not supposed to sell alcohol in our religion drink it or sell it and so he donated this restaurant that had had a fire and so me and some other brothers went in and i was 18 19 years old and we renovated the building with our own hands and turned it into a mosque and built new walls and all of that stuff and then i gave the first sermons there and uh, the grand opening, you know. And I was one of the imams there for a long time. And I was on like salary, like full time. So I did all that stuff. And I did a lot of interfaith work with Jewish communities and rabbis. And that's when I really got connected to them. And they started inviting me to things. And so I went to their services and I went to their, I mean, I attended bar mitzvahs. And sometimes they would invite me to recite the Quran at those things. They would say, Brother Ali, can you come and recite the Quran? And, you know, can you, you know, do... And we had beautiful relationships. And then being a a musician, there's this trope that the Jewish community, that Jews control the music industry. And, you know, I don't think tropes are ever good. But there are a lot of Jewish people that work in in the entertainment industry. So, you know, my booking agents and, you know, the people that do a lot of the the behind the scenes stuff for us have been Jewish people. My current booking agent is Jewish. And and also on the creative side, you know, people have seen us me with a band a few times. Whenever you've seen me with a band, uh, that was on the Rakim tour, the Ghostface Killer tour, um, the tour that I did with a band for Morning in America. The band leader is a Jewish brother, my brand Jordan Katz. A lot of the horns that you hear played on my albums, that's Jordan. A lot of flutes, a lot of the, like, when you hear those those instruments played, that's my man Jordan playing those. And others, too. You know, we've had other, other Jewish people as well. So I've always been connected to the Jewish community. And also, I buy, when I lived in America, I only ate halal or kosher meat. And so we bought our meat also. You know, and... So my connection is very deep. And I have to say that now, caring about, remembering, speaking about the history and the, and the humanity of the Palestinian people, the majority of what I post and share are Jewish voices. People like, um, you know, Norman Finkelstein and Gabor Mate and, you know, so many others. For a long time, I was sharing stuff from... Uh, Bernie Sanders. And I supported Bernie Sanders. I campaigned for Bernie Sanders. You know, and at some point he hit a point where he said he would never call for a ceasefire. And it's just like, when somebody says that, it's like, no, keep killing. A ceasefire is just stop killing. Stop the killing. And if somebody says we can't do a ceasefire, it's like, okay, so you want to keep killing. You know, I was disappointed to a degree with that. You know. Um, but I have had some, some doors closed and some of the people that I know, even though the majority of what I post are Jewish voices, you know, just over amazing, overwhelming support from the Jewish community. They are leading the way and they should lead the way in talking about justice for the Palestinians freedom for the Palestinians. They should do the heavy lifting on that. They should lead the way. And I'm happy to share it from them. And I'm happy to share from also people from the hip-hop world that have been for, for, at the forefront. You know, I've always loved Saul Williams. Saul Williams wrote the liner notes for Uncle Sam Goddamn. If you get the Undisputed Truth album, go to BrotherAli.com in the merch section. You get the Undisputed Truth album. I think it's still there. Saul Williams wrote the liner notes for Uncle Sam Goddamn. And, you know, I had an album called Shadows on the Sun. And I don't know, like, I don't know, but Saul Williams in the movie Slam, there's a poem where that he says, he wrote a, a poem for somebody. Somebody came to him and said, I'm trying to get with this chick, man. Can you write a poem for her? 
for me to spit some bars to her. He said, you massage the universe's spine as you twist through time and cast shadows on the sun. Now, I obviously knew that movie. I love that movie. I didn't think I was naming my album Shadows on the Sun after that. But it's like, man, yeah, of course that was in my, in my heart, in my mind. In my mind, I was saying Shadows on the Sun because of my albinism. And um, on the X-Clan album, the first X-Clan album, Brother Jay, shout out to Brother Jay, who's a friend of mine. Brother Jay says, Shadows on the Sunlight Balance in the Burst. And in my mind, I was like, he said shadows on the sun. That always stuck with me because, and I think he was even saying shadows in the sun. But in my mind, I was thinking shadows on the sun. And it always stuck with me. Like that came out when I was like 13 or something. But I always remembered it. And I remembered thinking of my relationship with the sun. So anyway, Saul Williams is from the hip hop world. And then also Amanda Diva, who's been, uh, Amanda Seals, who's been on this podcast. Um, and she did a really great average. She like went on social media and was like, yo, this Traveler's Podcast is special. And shout to her, you know, they have been really incredible voices for remembering and talking about the humanitarian and the justice and the freedom of the Palestinian people. You know, and when I've been on stage, I've said, you know, you know, and Uncle Sam, goddamn, whenever I perform that song, I've always, that's always been about freedom for indigenous people, for oppressed people. Uncle Sam Goddamn was not only for the moment in 2007 in that anti-war moment when Bush was president. It wasn't just for that moment. It was also always about First Nations people and the fact that we live in stolen land and that should always be acknowledged and also the Africans who were stolen and brought to America, and also the poor. That's been my foundation from the beginning, poor people of all colors and oppressed people of all colors. It, that's always been my platform, always, always. And I have a song called Philistine David that I made for, uh, for Jonathan Demi and Jimmy Carter. You know, they, Jimmy Carter wrote a book back in 2008 or so, 2007, 2008, Palestine, peace, not apartheid. And he visited Palestine as a Christian former president of the U.S. who was working on trying to broker these, these peace deals. And those peace deals, you know, they, I just saw, I don't like mentioning people's names, especially if I don't like them. Um, so I'll finish this. I'll think about whether or not to say that. But Jimmy Carter wrote this book. And Jonathan Demi, who directed Philadelphia and Silence of the Lambs, his, his nephew, I think it was his nephew, Ted Demi, was one of the people that started Yo! MTV Raps. And of course, shout to Ralph McDaniels, the, the box, the video jukebox, who was the idea that they really borrowed for Yo! MTV Raps. Uh, you know, somebody from hip-hop culture, Ralph McDaniels, went to MTV and, p- and pitched the idea for Yo! MTV Raps. They didn't call it that. But he said, let's bring this to MTV, and they turned him down. And then they did it with a white gentleman by the name of Ted Demi, who also was a friend and a fan to hip-hop culture. It's one of those, why can't both things be true? And so Jonathan Demi did a movie, a documentary about Jimmy Carter, President Carter. Uh, May Allah preserve him. And, uh, you know, his waving the flag and telling the truth about what was going on in Palestine. He said, this is an apartheid. These people, the Palestinians are living under apartheid. And he read out the international, um, you know, international law and all of that stuff. And he proved, I think he proved his point. But he got hate everywhere he went. They called him an anti-Semite. And, you know, there's a very prominent Jewish attorney, Zionist attorney, who just, you know, was, he called him everything under the sun, you know. And so Jimmy Carter, uh, uh, Jonathan Demme used my song Forrest Whitaker as Jimmy Carter's theme song. So he would show up in a place, this nice, sweet, old Christian man. And, you know, these people are 
saying all these terrible things about him and they're picketing him and they're calling him a hateful man and all this stuff. And here he is just walking in and they would play uh, Forrest Whitaker. And so they asked me to make a song for Listine David. So when I'm on stage and I do Uncle Sam, goddamn, I always, there's a part where the song breaks down. We don't give money to the bums on a corner with a sign bleeding from their gums. To, talking about you don't support a crackhead. What do you think happens to the money from our taxes? So how, why won't, like we say that we won't give money to a unhoused person on the street because I don't want to support their habit. But look what our taxes do. Our government's an addict, except they got a billion dollar week killing brown people habit. I always, those last two lines before the beat comes in, I make them about some current event. So in Arizona, they had this thing about, you know, they they didn't want uh, to allow Mexican brothers and sisters into Arizona. And while that was happening, I said, um, what did I say? Oh, I said, who's illegal when you live on stolen land? I should have called the song Arizona Goddamn. You know, and then people cheer. I always make it. Um, forgive me, I'm a curse right now, but um, Donald Trump. And that's a name I don't like to say. I don't like saying his name. That orange devil that was the former president. He said about African countries that they're a shithole. And I said... The, pre- the, the, the president called Africa a shithole, but his mouth is the hole through which the shit flows. Something like that. People cheer. I, I always have some line that I do. And on this tour, I've been saying, you know what it is if you're listening to me. Free Palestine from the river to the sea. The whole crowd erupts. Somebody came at me in the, in the comments section. And people have been coming at me in the comments a lot. But that's always true. If I even mention race, there's a clip from this podcast where me and Slug talk about the fact that Slug is mixed race person. His father was black and white and native. His mother is white. And just what it meant for him to grow up like that in South Minneapolis and navigating like what that meant for him as a person, just what that was like for him. And also, I, you know, and I referenced the fact that me being an albino, my parents are white. I was raised by black people. A lot of people think albinos are black. I'm Muslim. Like, I've always had this weird relationship with the two. It's just, you know, we share that, that we've had a complicated relationship with race. So we just, he was talking about his experience. If you look in the comments on YouTube, there's all this back and forth from white people that just don't like hearing about that. And so they, in the comment section, they called me stupid. They called Slug a liar. They call all this stuff. Well, that's very common. You say something that people don't like or you just bring up a truth that people don't like or you love people that you're not supposed to love or you say it in a way that people don't like, you know. Um, and there are, there are slogans and stay. And I, I don't like to talk in slogans. I don't like symbols. I don't like flags. I kind of avoid those things. I try on, and this is just something that I do. I try to talk about the, these things without the hot button phrases or slogans. In this case, I chose to say it. And I actually don't work for anybody. Um, so I can say what I want to say. And I can say what feels true to me. When Black Lives Matter was the slogan, there were people who interpreted the phrase Black Lives Matter. I I understand where that slogan comes from. Um, I didn't often use that slogan, but if if when I was invited to those events, I did. Because of the fact that anyone that was paying attention to black people's relationship with the police, if you were privy to it, if you were paying attention to it, you know that black people have been harassed by the police, have been... Uh, their rights have been violated by the police. They've been murdered by the police. It's as, and no one seems to care. And if you weren't paying attention to that, though, then when you heard Black Lives Matter, it was offensive. And the people who didn't pay attention and didn't care um, and who identify with the police said, if you say Black Lives Matter, you hate white people and you want to kill police. And I was like, okay, that's how you see it. That's not what I mean when I say it. That's and you know what I mean. So I avoid slogans unless I'm in a situation that I feel like the slogan. I'm going to support the slogan in this moment. That's my choice to do that, and I mean what I mean by it. 
I'm aware that other people have a different understanding of it. But, you know, I don't usually curse in my songs anymore either. But sometimes I do. Because sometimes I'm choosing the effect of that curse word. I don't say Uncle Sam, gosh darn. I say Uncle Sam, god damn. And I've been picketed for that. I've been, I've, I've, I've experienced a lot of, I've sacrificed professionally, personally for that song. And I'm, I understand that. In this case, free Palestine from the river to the sea means that Palestinians should be free to live on their land. There are those who say that that phrase means to kick out all of the Jewish people and even to kill them and to commit genocide on them. I'm sorry, that's not what it means. You know, it's not what it means. It's not what it means to me. It's not what it means to... Now, I've been paying attention to and caring about and doing life with Palestinian people for 30 years, just like I have with Jewish people. And I know that not all... And and so I know a lot of Jewish people who are anti-Zionist. And I've known a lot of Palestinians. So, you know, I've not... I didn't just start caring about or talking about this issue recently, since, since October... I've been thinking about caring about, talking about this, standing for this, supporting this for a long time. And, you know, it's a genocide. It's been an apartheid and it is a genocide. Like I, that's, it, it's very clear to me. And it's very clear to a lot of Jewish anti-Zionist people. You know, Zionism is a political idea. Zionism is, and this particular form and version of Zionism was started in Europe. It, it didn't come from the Middle East. Um, there were Jewish people living uh, in Palestine for centuries. Um, you know, under the Ottoman Empire, under Omar the Khalifa, Omar, Allah be well pleased with him, um, when the Palestinian people and the Ottoman Empire, the Muslim caliphate at that time was in control. Jewish people lived there. Um, and even when, even when Jewish people were a minority there, they lived there. And they had their, their lives, their communities, their um, religious rights, their human rights. They worshipped. Uh, the Muslims came in there after it was actually the Christians that put that ran the Jews out. The Muslims protected the Christians and sheltered them from the European. I'm sorry, the Muslims sheltered and protected Jewish people from the European Christians. Also, not all the Christians are European. Uh, what the Catholic Church, what the Constantinian Christians have done, is not representative of all Christians, even though to a Catholic person it might feel that way. It's not. I don't see it that way because that's not true. You know, what the kingdom of Saudi Arabia does doesn't represent me as a Muslim. And if somebody critiques it, criticizes it uh, and their policies and their politics, I know the difference. If they criticized ISIS, I know the difference. Even if they criticize the Ottomans, I know the difference. If you criticize the Fatimids, the, the Mamluks, the, you know, any of those if you criticize the nation of Islam, if you criticize any particular leader, I'm able to know the difference. And as a person of European descent in a, in a, a person that's legally white, I know the difference between, I'm able to keep track of the difference between loving my family, loving my lineage, loving my, you know, uh, people who are also legally and also knowing that what's that the idea of whiteness, the identity of whiteness is not something that I believe to be natural, righteous, virtuous, human, good, divine. I don't believe that. And it doesn't mean that I hate my people. It doesn't mean I hate myself. And that what's been done in the name of whiteness is an absolute scar on the face of humanity. I believe it to be one of the, if not the, most brutal things on the face of the earth, whiteness and what's been done in the name of whiteness. I don't think that my ancestors before 500 years ago saw themselves as white. And I know that there have been white people that have stood up over the years. Um, you know, some of my family are German. Some of my ancestry is German. 
Um, I don't know what they were doing in 19, in the 30s and 40s. I don't know. But I identify with the Germans who were anti-Nazi. I identify with the few, even if there's just a small percentage of them. You know, those are the people I identify with. The Germans who, while it was happening, stood up and some of them got killed and some of them went underground and some of them hid and housed and, and, and supported Jewish people even though I'm German. And I want to believe that I would have been a person who, because of the, just like I have unpopular stands that are not uh, in, in alignment with the people in power. I believe that at that time I would have been anti-Nazi. I would have been anti, um, you know, Holocaust. I believe I would have been that person. And I, I, and I wouldn't have been famous just like I'm not famous now. You know, I believe that during slavery times, that even the fact that I'm the lightest of light, I want to believe that I would have been a person that helped in the Underground Railroad and that spoke the truth and that wrote pamphlets. I want to believe that when John Brown was doing what he did, that I would have given my life in that moment too. That's, that's, at least that's where my heart is. You know, and so for white people who have a hard time doing that, you know, regardless of what other thing you got going on, um, I'm sorry that that's hard for you to see. And the fact that people have also, white people who have other uh, intersections that where the, like part of them, one of the groups they belong to has been oppressed. I recognize that. I see that. I know that. And people who have been unsafe uh, because they're gay or because they're Jewish or because they're poor or because they have disabilities or because they're a different religion or because they don't have the right uh, ethnic, because they're from an ethnic group that's under being questioned or whatever. All of those things are real, you know. Um, but the danger there is from white supremacy, you know. There's a time when Irish people were being brutalized by the English, and then when they came to America, they weren't, they weren't accepted. That's true. A lot of them were also racist against black people. A lot of them became police officers and that were racist against black people. There was a deep racism also against black people. And they could say, like, I've been oppressed. Yes, you've been oppressed by white supremacy. Um, you know, the, our Jewish brothers and sisters, they've been oppressed. They've been hunted. They went through a holocaust at the hands of the Europeans, not by the Palestinians, um, you know. For LGBTQ people, it's a little different, you know what I mean? And for women, it's a little different because there's, a, there's some inter-community stuff going on there. But as a person, like the way that society places me, not doesn't matter where my heart is, legally, me and my family have been seen as white since we've been in America. And I don't know the history of my family. My mother's adopted. My father died of suicide. His father died of suicide. A lot of family secrets. I just really don't know. And that's the truth. I would like to know, but I don't know. I spit in a tube. It says I'm mostly English and German, which is like, man, okay, so the British Empire did what they did. There were also British people that converted to Islam for debt for centuries. I hope some, you know, I think I also was told that I have Slavic roots as well. I, I hope there was Muslims in there. I don't know. I don't know that. But I know that there's always people that told the truth. I know there's always people that saw things for what they are, even though it was painful to their narrative of who we are. There's this idea in every group of especially white people. The idea of whiteness is that we're always right and we're always pure, no matter what. And we're always justified. So if we do something bad, it was only for good reasons. That the, the, the lie of whiteness is that we're superior. So that whatever other people, whenever other people kill, it's because they're violent. If we kill, it's because we're justified. That's white supremacy. So anytime you see people carrying out a genocide, it's just because we're, we have to get rid of these people so that we can live a utopia. It's also very utopian. We're moving towards a utopian thing. We just got to get rid of the people that are in the way of our utopian vision. So whether it's in America, we were persecuted. Yes, 
the Europeans fled because they were persecuted. And they came to America and had these beautiful ideas that they wrote in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and all of their other documents. Beautiful ideas. We just got to get rid of these indigenous people. And to build this country, we just need some free labor. So we steal and, and do all sorts of things to get African people here. And there were indentured servants as well. You know, we just we just got to get we just got to use these people and get rid of these people. And then we're going to have our utopia. That's white supremacy. It's what it does. You know, so the idea that like what we feel afraid. Yes. We're not safe anywhere in the world. Okay. Where are black people safe again? Where are black people safe? So if the idea is that because someone feels unsafe, that they get to do an apartheid, a genocide, an ethno state. Where, where in the world are black people safe? In Africa? No. White people colonized every inch of Africa. Where are black people safe? So where, where should black people get to go and set up their own state? You say in Africa. There's not a part of Africa that hasn't been, that's not currently under the control either directly or financially or with the, 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 the you know, the, the IMF or the like, you know, every single inch of the continent of Africa has been and is being tampered with by Europeans, by European control. So it's like, yeah, I mean, what my work is about, what my life is about, what my mission is about, what my music is about, what my message is about, is about there's a person, me, that is not only born white, but I'm also albino. Like Dave Chappelle always says, Brother Ali is the whitest of the whites. But you don't have to believe that. You don't have to because you're born in a certain body. You don't have to be down with that. You just don't have to. And there's a lot of sacrifice to be made in figuring out even what it means. You can make mistakes even figuring out what it means. I've made mistakes. You're going to make mistakes even figuring out how just because the world says that I am this. Does that mean that I have to believe that? And that that means I have to be in, in alignment with certain military and economic realities and, and practices and projects. No. And who are the leaders of that? Jewish people. There's a lot of Jew. I mean, the, the, the Israelism, the, that movie that they made, um, you know, talking about books going back, hundreds of, you know, books, um, speakers, educators, politicians. It's profound. It's profound. Influencers, authors, shout out to Sim Kern, you know. It's a lot, you know, it's a lot. And also know that if you're white and oppressed because of the, one of these other things, there are black people that go through that too and have it worse. So if it's like, well, so for me, I'm disabled and... Um, you know, there's mental health issues in my family. Okay, there are black people that are also disabled, that are also albino, that are also legally blind, that are also, that have, and they're getting it the worst of anybody. Okay? You could say, well, I'm a religious minority. I'm Muslim. The FBI came to my house. They pulled me off airplanes and so-and-so, so-and-so. Okay, true. There are black people that have been through all of that and they get it much worse. Even for people that say, I'm Jewish, Yes. Yes, there's anti-Semitism. It comes from white supremacy, by the way. And there are black African Jews that get it the worst, even in Israel or even in other parts of the world. You say, well, like, I'm, I'm a religious minority. I'm an ethnic minority. I'm a so-and-so minority. I'm a so-and-so minority. I have this thing working against me. I have that thing working against me. I'm oppressed in this way, I'm oppressed in that way. Yes. Also, there are black people that have all those things going on that are getting it the worst of anybody in any group. And that's true of all the groups I'm in. I'm a Muslim. I love the Muslim community. Black Muslims get it the worst. 
underrepresented, underappreciated, under, you see, I mean, go, you know, it's the truth. In Palestine, amongst the Palestinians, black people are treated the worst in Palestine. Now, there, there are those that say, well, see, the Palestinians are racist and they're not, okay, slow down a little bit. The Palestinians as a group have always been in alignment with black causes around the world. The Palestinians were speaking up about South Africa that, that because they recognize apartheid. Palestinians were speaking up about Black Lives Matter, about George Floyd. Palestinians were in alignment with Malcolm X. Palestinians were in alignment with Muhammad Ali. Palestinians were in alignment with, you know, have always been in alignment. Also, it's like, why can't two things be true? Can we walk and chew gum at the same time? Also, in every scenario, this idea of anti-blackness and white supremacy has extended to places where there are no white people. It's also a thing. There's colorism in Brazil. There's colorism in, you know, and you could say, well, what about this idea of whiteness? In India, there's colorism in India. There are people in Brazil that are called white Brazilians. When they come to places that are truly white, they're no longer seen as white. It's a tricky thing. And so also I say that this challenge of rediscovering what it means to be a human being for a white person is very difficult, it's very painful. But even as a, a white person has a choice to do that or not do it, black people are also going through that. What does it mean to be black and Puerto Rican? What does it mean to be, uh, you know, to be, like, can I even say African-American? What does that even mean? You know, and that's been the pro- that's been the project of people in the African diaspora throughout the world, including in Africa. I, you know, I was asked to speak at a conference one time in Africa, in in the Gambia, and I talked about the connection between hip hop and the African uh, cultural genius throughout the diaspora, and Africans being the mother and father of humanity, and also about the fact that being in Africa as an albino, what they call Pune, in Mandinka, like I'm in, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's Fulani, or Wolof, I can't remember. But being in Africa as an albino and seeing people bleach their skin, it's like, man, white supremacy and standards of beauty and all this stuff have touched the entire globe. There's not a place that hasn't been touched. There's not a place that hasn't been harmed. So, hey, so this is my Christmas message, but this is the message all the time. And there's a deep love at the root of this message. It's a deep love. It comes from me personally being loved and loving. And it feels hateful to people who, I'm going to say, are still so connected to certain ideas. Like I and so many other people have to learn to see ourselves as different than what the world says we are. And that's part of what I love so much about the Islamic tradition and what so many people love about the Islamic tradition. The Nation of Islam were the first to say the so-called Negro. And maybe there were others that said it before them. In fact, now that I think about it, I know there were. But they popularized the so-called Negro. Just because America says you're a Negro, doesn't mean that you have to believe that. You were something before somebody called you that. And you were actually something before these other, other, these other you know, adaptations and mutations arrived. The original people are in Africa. And all of the different hues and shades of humanity, including albinos, are all in Africa. The mother and father of humanity. So do we love our parents or not? And does me being on this end of the spectrum mean that I have anything other than love, admiration, respect, appreciation, gratitude, and just a human bond with people on the other end of the color spectrum? So everybody has had to go through this. Everybody has had to figure it out. It's part of what I love so much about Islam. So many white people reading the Quran and becoming Muslim because of what's going on in Palestine. And before that, 9-11. Before that, Malcolm X. 
Um, a lot of people wonder what's up with Ramadan. So they've come into, they enter Islam during the most difficult period. It always happens like that. Whether I say a word or not, these are people that are entering Islam, not because some imam or some rapper or Muhammad Ali or, uh, you know, Habib or like any of these people, not because of them, because of what they see in the Palestinian people. Let me read this Quran. Let me see what's up with that. So might seem weird for a Christian message, for, uh, for a message for Christmas. This drops on Christmas. But it's always the message. We love you. We appreciate you. Special shout out to everybody that's been part of this podcast. And um, if you're celebrating a holiday, I hope it's good. If you're not, I hope everything is good. We wish you well. We appreciate you very much. Like, share, subscribe, all that stuff. It really helps. Um, Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1, usually produces this podcast. But this time, all the weird look and sound of it all is just all me. I got to take credit and responsibility for all of it. Thank you for listening or watching. Really like it. Really share it. Really subscribe. Click like and share it with people, please. Uh, we do all of this word of mouth, and we're very grateful for all of it. We love you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.